Well, hello everybody. Welcome to the Movies as Mirrors podcast. It's a podcast where each week we talk about a movie chosen by our guest that reflects their experience as a part of a marginalized community. We hope that through our conversations we can explore how pop culture can be a way to learn more about each other and about pressing social issues so that we can make uh, the world a little bit better in some small way just by understanding each other more. I'm Max Johnson. I'm Benjamin Theminen. And today our guest is? Is Kimball Jensen, or Kimball Ma Jensen. Mm -hmm. I've gone by both. Okay. (laughs) Um, The movie we're talking about today is Flower Drum Song. It's a 1961 musical comedy directed by Henry Coster. It's an adaptation of the Rodgers and Hammerstein stage musical, which was an adaptation of the 1957 novel by Chin Yang Lee. It's significant because it was the first major Hollywood movie to have a majority Asian cast, and that would continue on for about 30 years until 1993's Joy Luck Club. Um, it would continue on being the only Asian-American uh, majority cast movie. Um, the plot follows uh, sort of a, a love... It's more than a love triangle. It's a love quadrangle, a love <laughs> square yeah. uh, between an Asian immigrant from China who's very traditional, just doesn't is not super familiar with Asian uh, with American customs. A very Americanized young man, a nightclub singer played by Nancy Kwan and a nightclub owner, and we see how uh, traditional Chinese values intersect with American values and traditions and hilarious hijinks ensue <laughs> or at least it's intended to um, and there's a lot of singing and dancing for two glorious years Broadway hugged flower drum song to its bosom and now it's all here the fascinating story laid in San Francisco's colorful Chinatown the irrepressible fun the love-making, tempestuous, and tender. The sparkling musical numbers, the music and songs that only Rodgers and Hammerstein could create. Man, man, Fanny was leaving her man. So uh, just to get started, Kimball, we were hoping to hear a little bit about your background, um, who you are, some of your personal history. Yeah, so I am a professor of film and media studies at Brigham University. And my academic background is doing a lot of new media studies. In particular, I look at YouTube and racial identity on YouTube. Um, and I interweave that with my other interest, which is, is critical race theory, and I do a lot of focus on Asian American pop culture. And so I wanted to dust off this film as something that I remember <laughs> from my childhood, um, and that is still a pretty significant um, piece to talk to you today, despite all its, its problems. Um, I'm curious, Kimball, like when, what was it like? Like, do you remember the first time you saw this or was this like a frequent thing that you viewed in your home growing up? Like, So this is, I don't remember the first time I saw this, but this film is like a fixture mm-hmm. in my home growing up. And, and, I, and I'm trying to make sense of, and I should probably sit down and, and have conversations with my parents, in particular my mom, um, about kind of the mediascape that I grew up with because I know in our house there were particular films that we watched a lot um, and sometimes it's because they were good and we liked them and sometimes it's like we watched these films because there were Asians in these films um, like despite the fact that I, I grew up and my parents are still heavily like we, we don't want to watch explicit things in films like I grew up watching the Bruce Lee movies and I in my brain cannot reconcile 
like how I grew up watching so many Bruce Lee movies, despite the fact that my parents were kind of opposed to like overt like sex and violence. Um, but obviously those films are pretty violent. So, and I think in that case it was like um, the representation trumped the content. Yeah. Um, because my, and, and, and I am in a different position because my mom did grow up in Hawaii. And so she was kind of used to being with a lot of other Asians. Um, and so it was like, like representing was kind of a big deal. So I, I just remember we watched Flower Drum Song was kind of like a thing that just happened in our house. Um, I don't think super often, but it was like a fixture and, and we would randomly like um, say stuff from the film every once in a while, not as much as maybe some other things like Back mm-hmm. to the Future or, or Star Wars or something that I also grew up with. But um, just like that was a part of the fixture of all these other films and things that were in our house. And, and I also think oddly like Karate Kid 2 was a big <laughs> deal in our house because they, they went to Japan, which we all knew was Hawaii. And we, and, and, but there was like there was like a predominantly cast of Asians despite uh-huh. the fact that, you know, the heroes Ralph Macchio. But just like we grew up, like I just remember repeatedly watching of the Karate Kids, we watched Karate Kid 2 the most because we, there were Asians and it was set in Hawaii and my mom was from Hawaii. And, like, like we kind of recognize some of the places and things. And so, like, there is that kind of um, background in our home. And, the, like, Hawaii Five-0 was, like, on all the time. Because there's the chance that you might catch an Asian on the, on the well, be, well, because Hawaii Five-0 is, like, everyone in Hawaii loves Hawaii Five-0. Like, mm-hmm. the old one, not the new one. Yeah. That's full of problems. <laughs> Other problems. But, like, everybody loves Hawaii Five-0 in Hawaii. And, and it's always showing in Hawaii all the time. And so... You know, we would watch it as well. And then, and then also, like, my uncle had, like, guesting roles on Hawaii Five-0. Mm-hmm. And so, like, we would try to find the ones that my uncle was in. That's great. Yeah. So, like, I'm imagining you, like, growing up and this just kind of, like, being a presence within in your home. Uh, like, did you – were you, how are you responding to it? Like, I, as a little girl, I could imagine, like, Nancy Kwan seems, like, pretty wonderful. Yeah. Like, and, this, like, <laughs> kind of sassy princess, yeah. Americanized, Asian-American princess or something. Yeah, and, and I should also bring up that, like, I didn't grow up in Hawaii. I grew up in California, but I didn't grow up in the predominantly Asian L.A. or Bay Area, California. I grew up in, in Visalia, which is Central Valley. And mm-hmm. when my mom moved to Visalia with my dad, who had already been there working, like, she was the only Asian person. Yeah. Within who knows how many miles. So you needed that representation. So, on so we cause... needed that representation yeah. when I was growing up. Um, and so, yeah, but I mean, I felt like we all knew who Nancy Kwan was. And Nancy Kwan had like this aura about her because she was famous and from other things. But I don't even remember being like super, maybe like invested in, Nan- in Nancy Kwan's character, the Linda Lowe character. Um, but I just remember really loving the song that the kids sing and dance to. Oh, yeah. The, the, the what do we do about the, gen- the older generation? <laughs> yeah. I just remember just being enamored with, like, these kids that took over the musical number and, like, had their own stage. And it's, and like, the only, it's like the only appearance for those kids. Like, I guess the the, the oldest of the young, the brothers shows yeah. up a few times. But, like, the other two kids, like, show up for that musical number, and then you, like, never see them well, again. <laughs> I think the youngest one in the musical number shows up in the dream sequence later on, where Sammy Fong and Linda Lowe have that weird I'm, odd Yeah, I might have dream ballet. Exactly. <laughs> I love these. Like, there's I'm folding the laundry 19th. as I'm watching the film, and I, I swear I just glanced down for a minute. <laughs> And I looked back up at the screen and, wait, did it, am I watching a different film? But yeah. that's typical of the, that era of musicals of the also. MGM, the MGM yeah. musicals in the 60s. I mean, there's like that weird, crazy singing in the rain sequence, right? Yeah. That's like the gotta dance stuff. That's definitely that. 
there's that parallel in this well we're going to explore some avant-garde stuff in this regular kind of narrative um let's have some fun that that being said like this design in the movie and then those sequences are pretty awesome there's crazy design in this movie like all the art on all the walls i'm like wow this is i don't know this is like conscious very consciously modern Mm -hmm. uh movie yeah and I also, I really perked up at the kids, what are we going to do about the other generation yeah. song? It was, mm-hmm. I don't know what it was about it. I think I really, they had really funny, engaging dancing with the most yeah. people. <laughs> yeah. And the, the kids are just really cute too. Mm-hmm. Um, but what do you think it was about it that made you kind of tap into it as a young kid? And I think, especially too, because like I was, I remember this more from being a young kid because I don't think this film showed up as much when I was a little bit older, when I was, like, in high school. But I feel like this was something I watched when I was much younger. Mm -hmm. And so I feel like being able to connect with someone who's young, who looks like me, Mm. who's singing and dancing, right? Um, And not singing and dancing in some, like, you know, very stereotypical kind of, like, with some not American instruments kind of way. I mean, they're singing and dancing jazz. Like, that's a a pretty big deal. And the dancing is fun, and the singing is fun. Mm -hmm. Um... I just well, and it's funny too because I just the the joke about the thousand year old eggs would always get brought up in our house for some reason. And for <laughs> those of you who aren't familiar with thousand year old eggs, I I'm sorry, I apologize. I don't remember what the Chinese name for them is right now in my head. But like so so there's salted eggs and then there's preserved eggs, and the preserved eggs are preserved in like ash. And they don't not I don't maybe some of them are literally preserved for a thousand years, but they're preserved enough so that the egg inside turns black. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Right? And and it's this delicacy. And yeah. and my uncle <laughs> my uncle absolutely used to love them. Um and um and so it was always a really funny joke to make sure the eggs were fresh because they're supposed to be fermented and old, right? Mm-hmm. And so we would always joke about that. And I don't know why, but that was the thing that stuck out. And then like you didn't watch it as a teenager, probably because you're more interested and you're like I don't know. I'm gonna watch what I want to watch. <laughs> <Not> just, <laughs> but uh, but eventually you kind of came around to it. It's like, oh, this is this thing that I grew up with is kind of problematic. In yeah. some ways. Even though I saw myself on screen mm-hmm. as a kid, now mm-hmm. I recognize that like that reflection isn't quite. Yeah. Although I will say it was a lot less cringy than I thought it was going to be. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I mean, I, I'd only seen that. Uh, I'm. I enjoy being a girl, girl sequence. <laughs> the deeply traumatized and Benjamin. It really. <laughs> I was just like amazed. Which we're gonna dive into in yeah. depth later in the podcast. <laughs> oh but gosh. and so yeah. I was I was pleased actually that at like I don't know it's it wasn't wholly reliant upon stereotypical representations. Mm-hmm. Like there's a lot of characters that represent a lot of different aspects of the yeah. Asian American experience and stuff like that. And while this film is highly problematic and there's stereotypes throughout, there's also some some very like subversive things happening within this film besides just like the Asian representation. There's like some very interesting like pushes in this film that that consciously like subvert sort of like uh standards and expectations of Hollywood. especially I, i'm thinking about like uh james shigete the 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 main son wong tai right mm-hmm. um the fact that well and then james shigete became very famous for being like this romantic leading man which was this very unusual thing especially at the time um because asian men were supposed to be right asexual or predators or the yellow peril or just not attractive right and then you have like this very attractive man who's singing and being suave and then like four women at least four women are right in love Mm -hmm. with him um and that is like incredibly subversive for the time i couldn't help but compare him to henry gold like i kept thinking about Mm -hmm. crazy rich rich asians probably because 
they're two of the very few American-made films with like an all Asian cast with a with a very clearly romantic desirable Asian leading man yeah and and like and I think the parallels like go on yeah. but I, like I, I couldn't help but compare those two characters for sure and the thing I was most impressed with by the movie is how it ends up not saying there is a correct way to be an Asian American yeah. you can be really traditional like the dad or Mei Lee mm-hmm. you could be very Americanized and no one is really villainized for their choice you can be whoever you want to be and uh, latch on to whatever influences you want to latch on to and still be a legitimate good uh, person, which I thought was pretty, like you said, pretty subversive. Yeah, and, 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 and I think a lot of the jokes aimed at the father kind of undercut the traditionalist of Chinese things, and most of the stereotypes, I think, fall around that. But it's interesting because in the end, it's actually shown that the father is actually truly wise, right? Mm-hmm. Which also you could say is falls into stereotypes, right? Um, and so I think there's <laughs> there's that tension there where, like, all the traditional stuff and the jokes at the dad's expense are kind of making fun of traditional uh, or this interpretation of traditional Chinese culture, which is quite interesting. But in the end, like, May, well, and it's also, like, this gendered representation, right, where May is seen as being glorified for her, like, traditional Chinese-ness as being this appropriate Bride. Yeah, I have to say, like the switch from when Wang Tao like switches from liking Linda and wanting to marry her to to loving May. I was <laughs> like, wait, what is happening? I love you now. And, yeah, exactly. <laughs> and wait, only... I realized the woman I was in love with is totally lying to me. So okay, I love you. I yeah. love and, you. And the only thing you can really attribute that to is the fact. I mean, I guess her beauty, but like everyone in the film is really beautiful. Yeah, yeah. it's a it's a Hollywood musical. Everyone's That's beautiful. That's right. And so it really is like, oh, she's this uh, representation of these like traditional Chinese mm-hmm. values, and that's why he must love her, yeah. you know, and that's mm-hmm. it. And so. Did you know in the book, before I forget, in the book, after, because we're talking about that, t- that transition between loving, um, he- loving um, Nancy Linda, Kwan. Yeah. Oh, poor Helen, well, by yeah, the way. I know, poor <laughs> Helen. In the book, after <laughs> Helen's dance sequence, in the book, she kills herself. After okay. that's right. Uh, after he doesn't love her, he, she, she takes him home, and because he's drunk, and yeah. that's right. <laughs> I feel like the d- book is quite a bit darker. Like I'm it was sure like it they is. took. I'm a, sure it a, is a dark, dramatic social commentary film, a uh, book, novel, and made it into a musical. musical yeah. <laughs> yeah. So instead of having her kill, her kill herself, she they have a bunch of just fun, kind of spooky dances with a bunch of blue yeah. sheets flying around. Well, you don't see her again. I mean, yeah. so no. she, she kind of disappears. Maybe that's yeah. what that means. Like, oh, yeah, yeah it ends with her being she, pushed her, down that yeah, slide. She yeah, she slides down that slide. slide. That's right. Which is like this Which, amazing dance sequence. It's very cool. Yeah. <laughs> it's like, it's my favorite dancing in the movie, for yeah. sure. But More yeah. than the kids? I don't know. The kids You're right. Cool. That, the kids are <laughs> awesome. You're right. But, but there is something that we do need to bring up that I think is kind of like this, one of the big problems that a lot of people point out in this film. Because um, there's a lot of love and then there's a lot of hate for this film in the Asian American community. And I think the thing that we need to bring up, too, which is what makes this film very problematic, is the anti, right? Mm-hmm. The dad's sister, yeah. who is a black American woman in yellow face. Yeah. Right? What? I, I, so I, 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 I was curious about this because I thought, like, sh- she doesn't seem to fit with the rest of the cast. Like, I looked up her name, and it is not an Asian name. Nope. And so I did, should have done She's, more research. So you want to... So, the one who sings Chop Suey. Yes, yeah. the Chop Suey song, uh-huh. which is interesting and weird. Um, <laughs> yeah. So uh, so I think... I can't remember what her name is. I think it's like Anita or Juanita Hill. Um, I apologize. Yeah, Juanita Hill. Juanita um, Hall. 
Anita Hall, yeah. So uh, she became famous and won a Tony Award for her role in the South Pacific mm-hmm. as the like um, Islander or the Polynesian woman, who she's also not Polynesian or an Islander in any way. Mm-hmm. Um, but I was doing some digging online and I was like, yeah, why is she in this movie? And the only thing that I could think of is apparently the the casting or the directors wanted to cast Anna Mae Wong, who is like, basically the only famous Asian American actress before the 1960s. So she's, she appeared with like Marlena Dietrich and like mm-hmm. um, a bunch of films and she, and she, and she kind of, you know, did like the very stereotypical thing. Um, but Anna Mae Wong was pretty famous about trying to petition to get a role in the good earth. Yeah. Um, that was denied it when they cast a white man in the lead and they're like, Oh no, no miscegenation. We can't have you in this film. Hmm. Despite the fact that they could have cast an Asian man in the film and then they mm-hmm. would have been fine. Right. Yeah. So, and then the person who replaced her won an Academy Award for her yellow face performance. Wow. Yikes. So, yeah. So, Anna Mae Wong was, like, this very famous person, especially among Asian Americans. And she was relatively famous in Hollywood for being this minority um, and being able to get roles in Hollywood. Um, but apparently she was supposed to be cast in the film as the auntie. And then she passed away before they started production. Gotcha. So I'm wondering if that was like, well, we're just going to get someone who's already well-known because other people aren't super well-known in this Mm -hmm. film. Um, And then, like, Hollywood really doesn't care about Yellowface. They think it's fine as per, like, a lot of stuff today still. So, I mean, and to me, I think when I was young, and I didn't think about it until I got older and I revisited the film, but I was like, when I was young, I mean, I have lots of aunties that don't look like me because mm-hmm. I'm in a multicultural, multiracial family. And so I just assume, oh, she's just like another auntie. Like, yeah, that doesn't she, look... she says like, you're. she always refers to the to Master Wong as like my sister's husband. husband. And right. so I thought, oh, well, she doesn't need to be all Chinese yeah. from, Hong, uh, from Hong Kong or yeah. like the rest of it. Yeah, and so to me, just growing up, I didn't really think much of it and I probably didn't pay attention because I was a kid. But I just assume, oh, like not all of my aunties look like me, so she's mm-hmm. just that. And then when I got older and I was like, oh, wait, no, she's in yellow face. Mm-hmm. Like, they are trying to pass her off as an Asian person, and she's clearly not. And so I think that generates a lot of kind of ill feeling towards this film, where it's like, we tried really hard for everybody else, but her. Oh, well. Yeah. Exactly. So, yeah, that's tough. So I think that is still, a, like, a really big point of tension when the conversation's about this film. And it it would be less of a contentious conversation had we seen some significant changes mm-hmm. in that kind of casting, but we just haven't. Yeah. Know, since then. That's mm-hmm. the, the tricky part. Um, I do want to talk about that. I enjoy being a girl. Yes. As let's well. talk about that. I just wonder, are you more, maybe not offended or maybe just like disturbed by the way this film treats Asians or the way it treats women? I, I think, I think this film <laughs> does a much better job at treating Asians than it does at treating women. That's exa- yeah, that's exactly because I, I was expecting to come in and be like cringing on behalf of uh, of Asian Americans who just would be grossly misbetrayed. But instead, it's like, oh, it's fine. But instead, it's just like, oh, here's the um, just the rampant misogyny that was, yes. that was present in the 1960s, yeah. which I don't think mm-hmm. is unusual. Mm-hmm for that time period, but it's just such a clear example of that. But there's definitely some historical reasons why uh, the women in particular, I think, in this film are treated the way they are that we can get into. And, like, let's talk about Benjamin's cringe during the I Enjoy Being a Girl. Well, I mean, throughout the whole movie, there's plenty of, like, just 
just dialogue that makes it very apparent that like these women are objects. Yes. Right. They call them tomatoes. Yeah. And fillies and and like like would you like to inspect my daughter before yep. you like we breach like, would break the contract all these different things right that I think they're kind of trying to have their cake and eat it too like simultaneously acknowledging kind of the limitations of these traditional ideas about women mm -hmm. and in the end it's actually it's Mei Lee who comes up with the idea that mm -hmm. like allows everyone to be happy and so she's afforded like to make that choice yes. in a way that you know for much, much of the movie she doesn't have a choice yeah. you know so there's that movement but then there's still like, like I say, they still kind of want to cling to some of this idea of like women as objects and that being the biz biggest example of like um Linda, you know, Nancy Kwan's character saying like, no, no, I like being an object. I like mm -hmm. choosing these kind of, uh, actively choosing these like pretty, I don't know, sexist ideas um, and assuming that for myself. The best lyric that I think goes along <laughs> is hold up here. Um, I'll read the lyrics real quick. Uh, it says, when I hear a complimentary whistle that greets my bikini by the sea, I turn and I glower and I gristle, but I'm happy to know the whistle's meant for me. Oh, yeah. <laughs> it's, it's the most clearly like like lyrics for a woman written by a man. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> it's like uh -huh. only a man would think <laughs> a woman is, is thinking Like I'm this. angry, but I really like, like I, it. I actually yeah, like this. I, I, I said no, but I meant yes. That's like uh -huh. the worst, like that's like the most ridiculous argument that is not an argument. It's ridiculous. Yeah. <laughs> um, <laughs> Yeah, so I think it's interesting because so so I rewatched this film last week and I was at the Asian American Studies Conference and and it let me think about things in some in some other ways and and it was an interesting pairing to to watch this while I was going to this conference. Um, so now I was thinking about like so why like why is there so much misogyny in this film mm -hmm. and like it's so heavy and it's so embedded um, and I started thinking about sort of cultural and historical context and so I think the first one is. Um, in the U.S., there's, like, this shift between um, who our sort of international uh, political and economic partners are um, after World War II, right? And so it's interesting because you had, like, in the U.S., you have, like, this heavy, heavy demonization of Asians, especially Chinese Americans. Um, you have Chinese exclusion law. You have all these yellow peril um, fears. And you have Japanese exclusion later. And, and so you have all this stuff that's in the history um, and what's interesting is once the U.S. starts to have better relationships with China, um, and in particular, I think it's the 30s that might be the turning point. And I actually went to this really interesting panel um, where the scholar was talking about how they actually had a member of the Chinese consulate in Hollywood in the 1930s to help Hollywood have better representation of Chinese culture because we had started to have a better relationship politically and economically with them. And so Hollywood, of course, is notorious for just stereotyping and demeaning everybody. Mm -hmm. um, but yet in like the Hollywood production code, there's this line that's like not represent, you know, individuals from other nations as like derogatory. There's some kind uh -huh. of line. Right. And so there was like this invested interest to show Chinese people in particular in a better light. Um, and then especially during World War Two, like the office. I learned all this during my conference, which is amazing. So uh, that the office of war whatever, you know, that institution was, um, that because China became more of an ally than Japan, that they became heavily invested in showing and distinguishing between Chinese people and Japanese people, right? Gotcha. And so I think, I mean, it's the 60s, um, I, and I, as 
my timeline, if it's correct, we haven't broken off relations with China yet because it ha- the Cultural Revolution hasn't really happened yet. Mm-hmm. Um, but this, like, rah, rah, proving we're American, and it could be part of that normalization of relations, but it could also be that China is starting to ter- have its communist turn. And so the Asian Americans, especially the Chinese Americans, have to prove that we are so American, yeah. right? Which makes sense if you think about the Chop Suey song, right? So you, you feel like the misogyny is a conscious representation of like ch- Chinese people and culture as like assuming a type of misogyny that, that we associate with Americanism? Is that I, like I, a, think American culture? I think there's links there between those, but it makes sense as to why the Chinese or the Asian parts are a little bit more glorified mm-hmm. and the, the parts represent women are kind of like, oh, whatever. Gotcha. Right. So I think there's like that emphasis and like we're going to emphasize this culture as a good thing. Mm-hmm. Right. How American needs foreigners. Right. Because the the burden of Asian American representation is always that Asian Asians in America are always foreigners. Right. Yeah. So like how American these people can be. Right. Even in the beginning sequence when they do like the. They're even American that they treat women like objects. Yep. Damn exactly. <laughs> and I think that a reason why. The I enjoy being a girl song comes off so oddly is because they're trying to distinguish between Mei Li, who's a very traditional Chinese person, not assimilated, um, with Nancy Kwan, who's supposed to be very American. Mm-hmm. Um, and they're trying to show, you know, how sh- she is sexually liberated. She's a, a sexual being, mm-hmm. which um, now just comes off as, you know, being, you know, a, a slave to the patriarchy. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Um, which yeah. makes me wonder, you know, in, in, in however many years, what, 50 years from now, are our. Are feminist films going to come off as uh, will be as apparent that the how the fingers of the patriarchy are strangling yeah. those two? Yeah. That's a good point. Well, <laughs> and then I think the other the other conversation that has to come in is this intersection between representing gender and race, right? Mm-hmm. So there's obviously different burdens of stereotype that accompany uh, Asian American men, right, than do women. Mm-hmm. And, and Asian American women have had this very long history of being considered like these sexualized objects, these yeah. desirable objects, um, right? Um, uh, the, I mean, we read in theory, we, we read this article about this, this, uh, this, this academic who's a fan of Nancy Kwan, but finds her, her uh, sort of complicit um, nature of the roles that she takes is kind of problematic, right? Mm-hmm. Where she's like, oh, well, I was in the world of, of Susie Wong, and I just happened to be a prostitute, which ignores all the history of, like, Asian women being cast as prostitutes sort of, like, over and over and over again yeah. in Hollywood, right? Um, and so there's, like, this other interesting scholarship that comes up um, discussing sort of the role that Asian women in particular play as this sort of counterpoint to, like, westernized American women, and how there's these conversations about how um, the kind of shift, and in particular, the really big shift, ha- shift happens sort of like um, with more overt sort of like women's liberation and sort of like the 60s and the 70s um, with feminism on the rise. And so there's like these conversations that also happen about how um, Asian women or sort of women of color becoming more desirable because they're more traditional mm-hmm. and unhampered by feminism, which is considered a Western white thing. Right. So these women are going to be more desirable as wives because uh, they're not, I don't know, tainted by feminism. And so and this also goes along with like this huge representation of like war brides and picture brides that are not just for um, like in the film. He has a a picture bride, Mm -hmm. um, 
But interestingly enough, most of the picture brides are are Japanese women who end up getting married to um, white men as well. Uh-huh. And then Korean women who also get, you know, so you have like all these allowances that are made in immigration law for men who were soldiers who were able to marry women overseas and then bring them home. And so they have all these adjustments to like the Chinese exclusion and to um, quotas and to things like that based on being able to bring home these war brides. So this musical number is like relying on our assumption, like the stereotype of of the sexualized Asian woman to mm-hmm. begin with, and added to that, it functions as to kind of resist progressive ideas yes. about like gender equality mm-hmm. in America. Mm-hmm. And I couldn't help but think about that, like the fact that Helen's left out at the end. Everyone else gets to be, have a happy ending, but Helen. I'm like Helen's like the least objectified of these mm-hmm. women. The least, like I mean, she seems to like at least live independently and not be relying on a man and like be like working as a seamstress or whatever you know she has a job she has an apartment she supports herself and she's the one who either commits suicide or just disappears that's right (laughs) (laughs) what does that teach you ladies yeah that's terrible oh my gosh so we're having to wrap this up soon but just uh one of our final questions is how good of a mirror is this movie do you think um i think for the 60s this is like crazy mirror um, mm-hmm. because we don't see anything for almost 30 years with romantic Asian American leads playing off each other mm-hmm. or yeah. even more than one Asian person in an American film, in a Hollywood, I will say this to Hollywood American film because there's obviously Asian American independent media. Um, but in a Hollywood film, like this is such a standout yeah. in terms of like diversity casting but also, right, there's that edge of so problematic because it's made in the 60s and there's all these other problems. But, I mean, if you think Flower Drum Song, Joy Luck Club, Crazy Rich Asians, that's like three films out of how many years of Hollywood where mm-hmm. you have majority Asian cast. That's a, that's a pretty sombering fact. I'm curious about that. This is a question that I want uh, us to talk about, but then I am going to open up to our listeners as well. Is uh, is Crazy Rich Asians like just a remake of this film, or like if if we could go back and I mean now Hollywood's so about these remakes. If someone picked some producer picked up Flower Drum song. song and said, "Let's redo this," mm-hmm. uh, I don't know what would it look like today. Like, what would you want it to look like today? Well, and that's a really interesting question because the the famous uh, Asian American playwright. Um, I always mix up his name, David Henry Huang, or the Henry David Huang. Anyway. Um, who became really famous for his play M, I think is what his play's called. Anyway, so um, he famously restaged Flower Drum Song in, like, the early 2000s. Um, and I can't find any, like, documentation about what it was. I mean, there's not a lot of documentation in terms of, like, visual. Because I was looking for, like, videos or, like, pictures or, like, what they did. And I can only find people who have written about it, but I can't find any images. And I was really interesting, really interested to do that, but I can't. I and mean, maybe now... You know, now that it's been, like, many years later since I tried to do that search and there's more stuff on the Internet than it might be possible. But I did talk to one of our colleagues here in the theater department, and she mentioned that she saw the staging of that Mm -hmm. play. And the interesting twist is that they didn't really do that much different during the production, except at the end, all the cast stood up and talked about who they were and what their actual, like, Asian ethnic background is. Mm -hmm. Um, Because that's the other problem, right, which is, like, even though we might cast all Asians— Technically, this is a Chinese-American story, and not all the characters are Chinese-American, Chinese yeah. right? Mm-hmm. Um, um, 
or even Chinese, right? Mm -hmm. So, and I think that's a really interesting take on like, how do you revise this piece and make it more conscious of current representation? Um, And I guess you could have just cast all Chinese Americans in this. Um, But it's interesting that it was the disclosing of the background and like making this more personal that actually revealed kind of like the structures of what's happening in this production. So, I mean, you, I think you could successfully do this in terms of representation, I think you'd have to seriously rewrite this uh, movie slash play in terms of its female representation. Yeah, that's. I really wonder what could even be done. Like, like, I don't like. I don't know if you would just rewrite the songs or take them out. Um, but I think the story is something that you could feasibly um, rewrite, but still have you know make it an adaptation rather than a just straight up like remake or reboot. And you could probably successfully do that as long as you made some adjustments. I'd love to see it. So, uh, so listeners, I'd be curious if you guys have uh, experiences with a film, an older film, that you enjoy for some reasons. Because we all enjoyed, let's be honest, we enjoyed yeah. this film to a certain extent. Mm-hmm. But we also found it problematic. Uh, what film would, uh, would you choose to remake and how would you choose to remake it to address some of the, the problematic elements that you see within it? Um, I don't know. I'd, I'd love to see a, a, a 21st century version of I Enjoy Being a Girl. I want to see <laughs> what that looks like today. I don't know what it would. Yeah. So you can send those responses into moviesasmirrors at gmail.com. That's moviesasmirrors at gmail.com. Looking forward to what you guys have to say. Okay, well, thanks a lot for coming on, Kimball. Thanks for having me. Great. Um, tune in next week when we're talking to our friend Natalie about the movie of Fantastic Women and some transgender issues. And then uh, we'd like to thank Aiden Bay for uh, our musical intro. Um, we'll see you guys next week.